0: If you've got a Bible on your table, you might want to turn to page 820, which is the passage that we'll read um, in a moment. The more discerning of you who follow things like the G2 Sunday Rotor will have been expecting today a sermon on hell. Uh, Unfortunately, hell was not ready for today, um, and we only wanted to give our very best for hell, um, so we've postponed hell until um, the autumn. Uh, I'm very fond of the Puritans. And the Puritans would say that when God gives you time before hell, it's for you to repent. So take it as God's grace. It's it's the mercy of God. It's extra time for you to get yourself right with God. Hell is coming in the autumn to G2. Uh, Well, I want to talk today about the power of contentment. And it it is a bit of a random one. And let me give you an introduction to what set me thinking about the passage that we're going to read and the subject. Um, uh, about a month ago, I had two um, dreams. and I'm not a great one for dreams, and I'm not a great one for um, imagining that there's a lot in the content of my dreams that, by way of which God is speaking to me. That may happen to you. I don't, that's not particularly for me. But sometimes dreams tell you a little bit about what's going on in your own head. And let me tell you what the two dreams were quickly. Um, in the first dream... Um, An aeroplane crashed on our house and blew everything up. It was absolutely brilliant in my dream. You know, it's in HD, surround sound. It was awesome. It really was. And it was like a fighter jet as well. So if you can have any plane crash on your house, you want it to be like a fighter jet spinning around. It crashed on the house and it destroyed absolutely everything. Uh, So the insurance said, yeah, it seems like your house has been destroyed and the plane's destroyed everything in it so they gave us the money for everything that we owned that was insured and then in the dream I kind of went on this journey of saying do you know what all those old possessions that I used to have I'm not necessarily going to get them all back I'm not necessarily going to go and replace each one that I have Um, and I kind of went down this path of actually I I could exist on much less and I remember thinking I'll just get some I'll just get five white shirts that would do me, and I'll only need like three pairs of trousers, one smart and a couple of jeans, and so uh, I had this, this, so it's a bizarre dream, everything's destroyed, and then my heart was sort of saying what a great opportunity that provides for maybe having a simpler life, where almost as if the things that had been destroyed I'd been freed from having them first dream, second dream, um, the cell randoms were moving somewhere abroad, I don't know where it was somewhere great, and um Uh, all our worldly possessions were to be moved in a container and that had all been arranged for us and on the day that the container arrives it arrives outside the house and it's tiny it's not a container, it's like a little box and suddenly instead of everything we have going into the box sorry for those of you who are moving soon by the way sorry, pastoral sensitivity small, okay. Um, So instead of thinking, right, well this is fine because everything we've got can go in the container and it will just appear where we're going. Um, We had to each just pick of all the things that we've got, some things we might not want anyway, but some things we might still like, but we'll have to just pick of those things, a few things that we can take with us. And again in my dream, if this was like a liberating experience that actually I would just take a few, a handful of cherished or needed things, and I would be freed from the rest of them. Uh, Well, I want to read to you uh, some words from Philippians chapter 4, and if you can have the next slide, and uh, I'll read them to you. They're on the page that you have open in front of you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Just click on to the next slide, Dave, thanks. We're a generation that, to be honest, is unhappy with life. Work, money, your boss, your friends, what's on television, your parents, God bless great parents, the person you're married to, the body that you're stuck with. We are a generation that carries a massive amount and a lot of expression that is focused around being discontent and unhappy with what we've got. Adverts are there to tell us that a better life is available for us just around the the corner. All you need is an upgrade for your mobile phone. Uh, Or to switch brands to a new and better type of yoghurt that will make you feel less bloated. I have no idea what that means. Uh, or, Or a better shampoo that will make your hair glisten. Because, let's face it, you're worth it. Adverts are telling us, do you know what, that feeling of life's not as good as it could be is available quickly through some things that you could just go out and get. However, in our society, divorce is up, suicide is up, prescriptions for depression are up, lawsuits, people suing someone because basically something happened that made them unhappy is up. Uh, And even though we actually have more than the generation that's gone before us, in fact, we have more than any past generation that's ever had, surveys tell us that we are a dissatisfied and unhappy generation. The abundance of these opportunities and things are not making us more content. These amazing words, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation were written by a man who was in jail the apostle paul who wrote those was in jail in rome writing to the church in philippi he was facing possible torture he was facing an uncertain future he was facing certainly his incarceration and possibly even an execution and yet he is a man at peace with himself and with god he is a, a galaxy difference away from our generation striving to find something that will make it content. In fact, Paul, in, in, the, in the emptiness of his jail, with the, with the tiny amount that he has, is saying, I have found it. He has found the thing that our generation is striving to lay its hand on. He's got the secret source. He's found the meaning of of life, He has found the ability to have contentment regardless of what's happened. Now this statement of Paul, I think, sits beautifully with the 10th commandment. I know you know your commandments off by heart. You don't need me to remind you, but let me do it anyway. The 10th commandment says this, do not covet. I only know it in the old-fashioned uh, version, do not covet. The first commandment is this. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength. That's the first commandment. And the tenth commandment is do not covet. And the similarity with Paul's words make what Paul says here not just an offer or an encouragement, but actually something that's available to us all. I was reading recently about Hugh Latimer, who was martyred in 1515. He was the Bishop of Worcester. He was martyred by Mary I for his Protestant views. And apparently his last words, as he's tied to the stake and they're lighting the flames beneath his feet, he turns to his friend and companion, Nicholas Ridley, and he says this, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man, and this day we shall light a candle in England. My word, talk about finding contentment in any and every situation. Here's a man that had that. We think about monks of old who gave away everything, all worldly goods, in order to have a life of simplicity and poverty focused on enjoying God. Think about someone like Mother Teresa who gave away all that she had of her possessions and of all that her life could offer. She died the same week as Princess Diana who we we know from her funeral and the biography of her life had many, many things and yet was deeply unhappy. The contrast is enormous. Think about that saintly person that you know who has a, a sense of a connection with life and with God that's not measured by the circumstances or the abundance of possessions. So if it's an offer. If this verse is just an offer, then it might just be for like the super-Christians and the spiritual elite. That maybe some sort of, you know, Jedi Master Christian sort of discovers the secret truth and we're pleased for them. You know, glad somebody got it. Somebody's got to win the lottery. But the rest of us, we're stuck where we are. But actually, I think Philippians 4 is really just a rephrasing of that 10th commandment. And if it's a commandment then actually it's something that's available to us all. I think Paul is not just telling us what he's got, he's actually saying this is something God wants for all of us. Well, what's the difference between coveting this 10th commandment and legitimately wanting or needing something? Is it right to have something that you want? Is it right to want something? Is it right to, to need something? I think... Sometimes we struggle for for the language to describe the subtleties of difference in this area. It's a bit like the Eskimos. Apparently you have 12 words for snow because there's so much of it. So they've got words that describe it in all its difference. We don't really have very good words, a very good abundance of words to describe this vocabulary stuff. Coveting, the commandment says, is bad. But I think there's a legitimate wanting or needing something which is okay or good. Here's the best way I can come up to define it to you. If we can just have the picture, Dave. And the next one. Yeah, it's a dog. Oh, everyone loves a dog. Okay, Uh, so here's a dog. If... Okay, I've just got to check my notes. Yes, okay. If, If the thing you want is the tail and you are the dog then that's good because the dog is wagging the tail okay if you are the tail and the thing is the dog then the dog is wagging you does that make sense if, if you are the dog and the thing is that you're deciding, am I coveting this or legitimately wanting or needing it? If that thing is the tail, then the dog is wagging the tail, and that's good. If you are the tail and the the thing that you are trying to decide, am I coveting or legitimately needing or wanting this, is the dog, then the tail is wagging the dog, and that's bad. In my head, that worked out better than.
1: Come and see me afterwards. I'll explain it to you again.
0: Um, it, and there are some dogs in the congregation, so maybe we'll bring in a dog next week and we'll, we'll, we'll do a little role play. It'll be a lot clearer. Okay, think about it. You'll go, at 10 o'clock tonight, you'll go, I get it. Uh, yeah, okay. Right. I want to say three things about this, this passage. Three things that, as I've, as I've mulled over Paul's words that have occurred to me and might be of benefit. To you, And the first is this. Paul says in verse 12 that uh, this contentment that he's discovered is a secret. Why is it a secret? Why does he call it a secret? Well, I think partly because it's not obvious common sense. It's not in plain sight. It's not common knowledge. It's not the thing that everyone knows. It's not the obvious thing. In a sense, he's saying, I've I've found something which has been hard to find. And a secret might be something we all want to know. There's something um, inviting about this secret that he has discovered. There's a kind of a godly desire that we also want to know. I wonder what that secret that he's discovered is. Uh, If we can just click on, there's a quote from um, Mark Twain. Mark Twain in his book uh, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer he's, he's trying to describe from one character to another the idea of desiring something and he's saying do you know what that is? When you've got it you want it but you don't quite know what it is you want but it just fairly makes your heart ache that you want it so. Uh, Wallace Stevens the poet puts this idea like this he says in contentment, I still feel the need for some imperishable bliss. He's, he's trying to, to describe the difference between the disappointment that the earthly life often gives us and how it shows us about something that only God can bring. If there's a perishable bliss, then it's something that's going to be over. And, if, and then our contentment is, def, is defined upon the fact that that thing needs to continue in order for us to be happy. It could be like the holiday that you're on and you think it's absolutely wonderful, but it has to come to an end. It's perishable and it has uh, an end. And it's almost as if these fleeting joys or fleeting pleasures um, illuminate deep within us uh, a sense that we are made for more, things which only God can fulfil Or or meat. Wallace Stephen also said this. He said, the reason I get joy is that they, he's talking about these these things that he might need or want, remind me of it, but they are not it. The German poets like this, and they call this uh, sensuch, which means a blissful longing. The, The things which sort of God awakens in our hearts to long for and desire after. William Wordsworth, the Romantic poet, he calls this um, the imitations of immortality. Again, they're all just trying to describe this thing that actually life brings good things, and yet any of those good things somehow is only a pale reflection of something better and fuller that our hearts are still longing for. I want to read a quote to you from um, C.S. Lewis, and... I'll read it from the screen there. He says this in The Problem of Pain. When you stand before some landscape which seems to embody what you've been looking at all your life. In your hobbies it's the secret attraction. Always on the verge of breakthrough. The smell of cut wood in the wood Or the clap clap of water against the boat's sides. You've never had it. But if it should really become manifest you would say. Here at last is the thing that I was made for. We cannot teach each other about it. It's the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable thing at once, the thing that we desire before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, and which we shall still desire, even on our deathbeds, while we are this, uh, this is. If we lose this, we lose all. He, again, he's referring to the, the frustration in life that surround those things that we often love the most. And it's because those things that we often cherish and love arouse within us something that God put there that actually only God can fulfil. And actually in life, it's often the friendships and the marriage and the careers that both satisfy and arouse this disconsent. Why is this thing that Paul's talking about a secret? Real contentment, he says, is a secret. And I think it's because the thing that we were made to receive is not just the thing itself, but the thing that's hidden underneath it. And the thing that's hidden underneath it is actually the experience of God that's associated with it. We want to be loved by people in life. But actually our greatest need is to be loved and accepted by God. We want to prosper in our work and the things that we do. But the greatest fulfilment is to know that we have been in God's service. We, we all desire in some shape or form affirmation or acclamation of, of well done. But our greatest and ultimate need is actually to receive God's approval. So contentment... Is a secret. It's something that Paul says is it's fleeting and subtle. It's hidden inside those things that we actually are drawn to, that fulfil us in life, and yet at the same time, disappoint us because they are not the fullest expression of what God is bringing to our lives through those things. The second thing that Paul says in in this passage is he says um, there is a, a a way of knowing. Whether we have begun to touch this godly contentment. We can have the. That's it. And uh, often in life, we, we start off when we're younger fixing ourselves on the thing we want that will make us happy. And if you've seen this movie, City Slickers, it's a great film. And uh, in it, all these uh, office workers who've, you know, They're bored and dissatisfied with their life. They've got discontent and they're all miserable. They decide, the solution to our problems is this. We're going to go off and be cowboys. So they meet this guy. He's called Curly. And he's like the real McCoy, absolute cowboy. And there's a point in the movie where they say, Curly, you just seem like we've got far more than you, but you just seem so happy. What's the secret? And he goes, that's the secret. And then there's a funny joke about, well, is it your finger? No, no, no. It's one thing. The secret is one thing. And if you can work out what that one thing is, then you'll be happy. Have you heard the song, you know, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow, then you'll find your dream. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, So Paul kind of offers us a test of whether we've found this dream, this thing that offers godly contentment. And it's strange because the two things are like extremes of each other's. He says in the, in the passage that he has found the ability to be content in plenty and in want. This is what he said. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Henrik Ibsen, the playwriter, says this... ...that he says, everyone has a life lie. And when you take that life lie away from them... ...they lose all his happiness. What he's describing is that situation where... ...somebody loses their job... ...and it's as if their life has ended. And what, what's happening is his sense... ...that their job had an element of being a life lie in it. Not that the job was bad... But something about how they were connected to it, how their identity was found in it, when that job is taken away, it's as if they've become an empty person. They've lost who they are and they don't know who they are because something of their soul was invested in that thing. Or it could be a relationship or it could be the way we're seen or it could be things to do with our family. The real secret of contentment can handle both the experience of plenty and want. And since Paul sort of says he's on a journey, he's learning it, he's discovering it, he's finding out this secret, I think many of us actually take a long time to even touch this, because we often don't experience plenty in its fullest sense, or want in its fullest sense. And actually it's often the case that if you talk to people who've been through brilliant times or difficult times, there is often wisdom of life that was forged through those experiences that they couldn't have received through any other route. Not to be morbid, but who are the people that commit suicide in life? I used to work for the Samaritans, I used to be a telephone um, counsellor and I know from some of the stats that those people who commit suicide often fall into two polarised groups. There are two situations of life that can push people to the brink of despair. One group is those who feel like everything they dreamed for or has been taken away. And that's probably the first group that we might think about. Those who feel like, I had hopes of so many things and it's as if all those things have gone. And it might be the, the broken marriage or the lost job or the, the, the thing that happened that's devastated them. But the other group who are actually more likely to commit suicide are people who've actually got it all. And you hear this every time you hear of that celebrity. You think, they're amazing. They they did those movies. They did those incredible songs. They had lots of money. They might have even had a great family. And it's as if they had all those things. And it's as if they reached the dream. And they took a sober look at the dream and thought, is this all it is? I've actually got to the dream. Is that it? It's empty. And they hadn't found the fulfillment of... Contentment, And actually I found in, in mission, one of the things that often drives people in despair to come and discover God uh, are those who've had their dreams either dashed or fulfilled. It's often people at the top of their game or their bottom of the game who are driven to find God because both equally can bring a type of despair and discontentment with life. The King James puts the verse we've been reading like this. He says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am in, therewith to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. He's discovered the secret. And when these situations in life don't come good, there are, um, I reckon, four things we we do. Four ways we respond. There might be more, but there are at least four ways. One way is we might blame the things. I'd be happy if I had a better husband, better job, better car, better body, better whatever it might be. And this breeds frustration with the things of life itself. In fact, there's even a modern word to describe it. You may have heard it. It's called FOMO. Have you heard of FOMO? Do you know what FOMO is? FOMO is fear of missing out. And it's, it's the blame of things... To make us content taken to its extreme. The, discontinu- the the kind of protecting yourself from things. I won't say yes to that party in case a better, better party offer comes along. Um, I won't go out with that guy because a better guy might appear tomorrow. I won't do that thing because the better thing might come. It's, it's a fear that actually I might miss out. And in... In this situation, when we blame things, then actually we become a user of life, or in fact, almost an abuser. We don't climb every mountain, we climb every person, we climb every situation, we climb every event, because we're struggling and striving to find those things that fulfil. The second thing we might do is we blame ourselves. Well, there's something wrong with me. That's the reason why life is not working out and not delivering uh, how it's meant to be. And everyone else looks like they're living... The dream, brackets, they're not, close brackets. There's something wrong with me and it takes us to sadness or despair or personal depression. And there's an element of truth in there, but the truth is actually a universal truth that there's actually something wrong with all of us. So Christianity just calls that sin. So we're all in that situation. We could all legitimately go down that route of saying, maybe there's something wrong with me. Well, I've got news for you, there is. But that's not necessarily why you've not connected with God. The third thing that we might do is we might blame the universe. We might blame everything. It's everything that's wrong. I didn't like the smell, so I cut off my nose. She broke my heart, so I made my heart hard, so it can never be broken again. And we respond to a painful world by killing that part of us that connects with that thing that we found painful. It's like a spiritual Botox, and we become hard ourselves. And the fourth thing we might do is we blame God. God is at fault. He made this broken world, and he put me in it, and that is the reason for my misery. And I've got another quote from C.S. Lewis uh, to read. He says this, Preachers are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, and there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, and there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, there is such a thing as sex. I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. It's possible that our frustrations in life and disappointments and lack of discontent actually point us towards heaven. And the third thing I think I see in this passage is that true contentment is learned. And I don't think this secret of contentment that he's talking about is just like something we could whisper in your ear, like you know, the Douglas Adams book where they, they investigate the meaning of life and it turns out it's 42. And so we could all just, you know, text each other and job done. We found the secret of life. I think he's describing something that he's discovered in the long haul of his Christian life. Paul, who wrote these words, was probably 20 years into following Jesus, at least. He'd been on a long and fruitful journey of seeking after God. And, and just now he's saying... I think I've learnt the secret of how to be content. I've got a few ideas in closing of how we pursue this. We're not going to have a prayer time tonight. It's not like, come to the front, we'll pray for you and then you'll be content. No, I think this is something just to ponder and reflect on. And I've got four things that I think um, will help us reflect on it. The first is this. I think we have to unmask coveting that thing mentioned in the 10th commandment for what it is. Coveting is the enemy of the contentment that Paul is trying to describe to us. And the Tenth Commandment, as I said, is like the first commandment rephrased in, in reverse psychology. There should be nothing that we want so bad that it makes us miserable if we can't have it. The only things that you so want that it makes you miserable are in reality things that we have put before us. And God. If you covet, it's because you put other things before God. That's the essence of what coveting is, and it's to create an idol in our lives. And physiologically, idols are things that give people identity. That's why we crave them. Sociologically, they're things that um, give us status or um, credibility with other people. Theologically, they're things that we feel might give us acceptability to God. If we're sad or miserable or discouraged or depressed we maybe need to ask ourselves what thing have I allowed into my life that's taken that title place that belongs to God so that I love him with all my heart with all my soul and with all my strength. What thing has stolen that thereby becoming something I covet? Not something I need or want, but something I covet. Because the things that sometimes we're after, if they're things we're coveting, are in reality after us to spoil our relationship with God. The second thing is I think we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. That is, we need to remind ourselves of the truths that reflect and describe our relationship with God. It could be like when we have a time of worship, when we're in a sense saying, God, I give you my all. Maybe we should all start with a piece of paper and write down all the things in our lives that might potentially be against our worship. What are the other things we might be potentially worshipping? So that when we come to worship God, it's almost as if we're saying, I'm not going to worship those things and give them worth. I actually want to give my worship to God so that all those things can, can have a proper and healthy place uh, in my life. Tim Culler says uh, we need to practice icing. Theology, and icing as in the icing that's on the cake. And he says this, that the Christian approach is not to abstain from or worship good things, but rather to enjoy them. And he says it should be like this. When you eat some cake with icing, you go, that was nice, but it was just icing. You don't from that conclude, brilliant, I'm now going to have icing for breakfast, icing for lunch, and icing for tea. Okay, I'm not a medical expert, but I reckon that will wreck your life. Okay, when icing comes along, you go, brilliant, icing, love icing, thank you. Uh, But you don't live on it, you don't crave it, and you don't depend it. The third thing is, I think Paul says we need to commune with God over this stuff. It takes time. I think it took Paul maybe 20 years to get to being able to make the statement that he made. And he finishes that passage that we read by saying this, I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. I think probably we need to invest time into it. It's not a quick fix or a simple prayer and job done, it's finished. It's something that we hold before us as we journey through life, seeking to follow after God. I think the fourth thing, and I'm sure there are many others, but the fourth thing that occurred to me is to cultivate the attitude of gratitude. And that was the point of my little diagram on the screen, sort of Tour de France-esque. Um, uh, the attitude of gratitude when when we are thankful when we cultivate the habit of thankfulness I think is an antidote to coveting and desiring because thankfulness is that thing that roots you where you are see when we're coveting and desiring we're focusing on where we could be, might be, want to be but when we're thankful we're actually investing ourselves in saying here's what's brilliant about where I am now. And I think as we cultivate that attitude of thankfulness and, and uh, appreciation towards God, we actually uh, wear away those parts of our soul that says, a bit like the TV adverts, if only this thing changed, then you could be happy. Thankfulness and the attitude of gratitude says, do you know what? I could look at my situation now and see how good it is and rejoice and worship in that.